Well, it le it's left to me to bring us home, so that's what we're going to do. And uh, I'm excited. I, I've been talking all week about all the, everybody's different gifting, and so tonight I don't even have to pastor you. I just get to teach, which I like to do better because it means I can stick with my notes and just flex my teaching gift. And it's been an honor to have all these great fathers in the faith come and help us honor the work of God. And my wife and I are truly honored to have so many friends that would come from so far to celebrate with us. Um, and yet the work's not done. Forty years is a great milestone. Forty years is a very prominent biblical number. But we don't stop there. I feel like we're just kind of getting going now. Like, all right, the foundation's been laid. We, we kind of know what we're doing now. We've got the ministry of helps in place. And we know what this thing looks like. We've proven to the Lord we're not going to be tempted by the seeker-friendly movement. We've proven to the Lord we're not going to chase money. We've proven to the Lord we're going to stick with the Word and the Spirit. We're going to stick with doctrine and laying hands on people. We're going to stick with the book of Acts because it worked for them, and God hasn't issued any updates. So it's not like your phone where, you know, you have to issue an update so you can get text messages again. We're sticking with the first edition because God hasn't seen fit to change it, so neither shall we. And yet the problem at hand is you and I know we're living in the last days. Every day that goes by, we're one step closer. We can all perceive it. One of the few symptoms I believe the Lord really shows us in the Scripture for the last days is the great delusion. And we are there. When our scientists are deluded, and these are Ph.D. smarty pants out of our former seminaries, like Yale and Harvard and Princeton, and they're so deluded, they don't know whether to squat or stand to pee. And they say men can have babies and women can have erectile dysfunction. And we got issues. That's delusion. I mean, even our, even our kids understand better than this. And so if you want to look for the sign of the times, it's the delusion of the great Christian nation, America. And, and I don't mean to be a naysayer, but Jesus prophesied that it would happen. So we can't stop it. The best we can do is maybe be the restraint that Second uh, Thessalonians tells us to be. And yet we also are smart enough to look around and see that the American church is not a restraint. The American church is complicit. The American church is led by, generally speaking, this is a generalization, the American church is led by insecure people who just want to be liked. And we've taught about the great falling away for a long time around here. I never thought it would be led by preachers. We always knew the great falling away would take place. I never thought it would be led by preachers. I never thought you could come to church, stay faithful, and go to hell from your pew. I never thought it would be the ministers of the gospel leading the great falling away, teaching God's people how to turn off one doctrine at a time. You know, there, there are peripheral doctrines the body of Christ will disagree with. They're not core. They're peripheral. And I think we can disagree on those and maintain our Christianity and our unity of the faith. But there are those core tenets that you start shutting those things off. At some point, you cross a threshold. We don't know where it is. And my doctrine tells me you're no longer a believer. If we think of core Christian, Christian tenets as vital organs, how many of our vital organs can we shut down? You can take out one lung and do all right. I mean, you're not going to run a marathon, but you can do all right. You can have half a lung. You got two kidneys, you can donate one. You can have half a liver. You can take out several yards of intestine. You're going to have to eat different. Gallbladder can go. I mean, we can take off arms and legs, and you can be called Bob and have a few organs missing and be all right. I mean, you're not all right, but you're subsisting. At some point, we remove enough of your vitality 
You're no longer with us. At some point, the body of Christ, individuals, heretics, apostates, they shut off that last doctrine, that last thing that anchored them to the validity of God's word. And at some point, they're no longer in the faith. And yet the, the, the apostles tell us of the epistles that we ought to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto us. Our theme for this conference, and I seem to be the only one that teaches on it because I can't tell the fathers what to do, was endure to the end. So by the fact that I endured to the end, here we are. I'm not going to tell Dr. Barkley what to preach. I'm not going to tell Dr. Hanner what to preach. I'm not going to tell Pastor Ronnie or Dr. Jacobs. It's, yeah, our themes endure to the end. You know, it's a suggestion. You know, it's, it's a recommendation. I mean, I'm, it's our theme. We put a little lamp on the cards we sent out, kind of like, you know, 10 virgins endure to the end. Keep your lamp lit. Nobody's touched on it. So it's my conference touching on it. We're watching people not endure to the end. And, and over middle school peer pressure, they're snuffing out their own lamp. So they'll be accepted by pagans going to hell. We, we, we're desperately wanting to be accepted by people who don't know whether to squat or pee. To stand to pee or squat. And I've, I've taught this before. The King James Bible says, he that standeth and pisseth against the wall. He, he that pisseth against the wall. The Bible's very clear. He could see it way before it was going to happen. Moses like, are you sure you want me to write this down? The Lord's like, trust me, there's coming a day. They're not going to sure how to pee. So use the pronoun he, 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 he. Like I'm a he, you're a he, he. All right, he that's, that pisseth, okay, yeah, against the wall. Like who else is going to pee against the wall? Lord, trust me, they're going to be confused about this. They're going to put people on the moon, satellites in orbit. We're going to have technology, and they're not going to know how to pee. It's in your word, forever written in heaven. It's part of the eternal Godhead. He that pisseth against the wall. Because she's can't do it. She that reigneth upon the ankles. That's not to be crass, but I mean, a deluded day requires some straight shooting. That didn't come out like I meant to say it, but now that I said it, I claim it. That was, in, that was intentional. I do teach that from time to time. Here's a little pastoral moment. I said it wouldn't pastor him. Some of you daddies, can you teach your boys they don't have to literally piss up against the wall in our restroom? Because we are mopping up puddles. Or maybe that's you. Maybe you're like, pastor said I can do it. No, there's a urinal there that you're supposed to aim for. Rick's tired of mopping it up. All right, pastoral moment over. The greatest spiritual thing we're fighting today, I would say this, the greatest spiritual, the greatest spiritual movement in the earth today is not the spirit of God. It's the spirit of lawlessness. If we're going to endure to the end, we have to beat the spirit of lawlessness. And the spirit of lawlessness is the fruit of the Antichrist spirit. And just so you know, it moves upon every one of us and every one of us has a little bit of lawlessness working through us. It's the spirit of the age. Lawlessness is not the rejection of every law. That's why it's so subtle. Lawlessness is simply defined as doing what you want, when you want, as you want. That's the spirit of lawlessness. Christians are failing to endure because they're doing what they want, when they want, as they want. Lawlessness isn't the rejection of every law. It's the rejection of laws of inconvenience. 
I'm, I, I was raised part of my life in Baton Rouge, been to, been to Mardi Gras during the day as a kid. We all know what Mardi Gras is like. That's total lawlessness, but not complete and utter rejection for every law. They don't murder people at Mardi Gras. They just walk around naked and drunk. And it's an acceptable level of lawlessness. You go to a frat party. That's lawlessness. They're not murdering people at frat parties. They don't mean to anyway. I mean, kids overdose and die, and that's why you don't go to a frat party. But they want some laws. Even when our BLM Summer of Love decided they were going to you know, light up the night with business owners' businesses, they didn't want to be shot with rubber bullets. Even they said, hey, there's got to be some law and order to our burning and arson. Even the BLM lawlessness wanted some law. So the subtlety with lawlessness is that it's not a total rejection of all law. It's not total anarchy. It's selecting the laws that convenience you or inconvenience you. And the hypocrisy of it is you'll hold people to laws that you don't hold yourself to. That's the spirit of the age. The body of Christ is doing that. We're selecting scripture. We're cherry picking scripture. We call ourselves word people, but we're probably really not. We're selective word people. We're word people, asterisk. Go down to the bottom of the page, asterisk. I'm a selective word people. I like the blessings. I want the positive blessings. I want the cosmic deity who gives me a genie's blessing. I want, I want God to do what I tell him. I don't want him to tell me. And we've got to be mindful. The spirit of lawlessness will creep into any denomination, any church, any movement, any faith movement, any charismatic movement, and bring lawlessness to it. It's do what you want, when you want, as you want. The, the antithesis of this is actually the spirit of self-control. The Greek philosopher said those that walk in self-control desire what they should, when they should, as they should. So if you don't have the ninth fruit of the spirit working in your life, you're going to automatically default to lawlessness. But this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereas the Holy Spirit wants to produce nine fruit of the spirit in our life, the ninth one being self-control. The spirit of lawlessness says, do what you will, which happens to be the first commandment of the Satanic Bible. Do what you will. Do as you will. Now, I want to discuss the nature of the Old Testament because I am an Old Testament guy. I absolutely adore the Old Testament. I've always been drawn to types and shadows. Ever since college, I spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. Now, don't get me wrong. We know that we're not saved by works. We're not saved by the law. We're not made righteous by the law. But you better believe this new covenant we're in is built upon the entirety of the Old Testament. When Jesus Christ said, I am the word, what was he talking about? When Timothy said, you have known the scriptures that are able to make thee wise, was he talking about Luke? The revelation, Jude. He was talking about Genesis to Malachi. They had no idea they were writing what would be called the New Testament. That term wasn't used to the second century anyway. In fact, when you study Judaism, and I've spent the last year, year and a half doing it for this botany book, studying the Talmud, the Midrash, the Gemara, the Targum, and you start wrapping your mind around the oral Torah and everything that Paul believed because he was of that era. You start to see how they saw things. And the early Jews during the early church, they didn't call them Christians. They called them sectarians. Because they were Jews that had kind of diverged into a new sect. And this sect followed the way. It was Antioch that first called them Christ-like ones to mock them. 
And so we, we, we don't see this. We're, we're, we're so far removed from early church history, we put a modernist hermeneutic on the scripture, and we see things way more clearly than they did, and we think the way we think is how they thought. And we have to be careful with that. So I, I want to discuss a little bit about the law of Moses because we're dealing in a day where people are totally rejecting the old covenant. But, but we forget Jesus came to fulfill it. All the prophecies are old covenant. So I, I want to say a few things that I'll get into statistics. The Jews call their Bible, what we would call the Hebrew Bible, we call it the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh. It's called the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H, the Tanakh. But that's actually an acronym. It's an acrostic. And the Jews divide the Old Testament into three portions. We divide it into four. We call it the, the law. We call it the historical books, the poetical books, and the prophets. We break it up into four. They don't do that. They break it up into three portions. The Torah. That happens to be a Hebrew word. That's the T in Tanakh. The Torah. That is the law of Moses. 613 laws beginning in Genesis with be fruitful and multiply. That's the first of the 613. The second is when they said, don't eat the loin because of Jacob. That's the second commandment they have, they count. And then the next 10 are the 10 commandments. And then from there, there's the 600 and uh, what is that? One, 601 after that. That is spread over Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the law is given for the most part for two years at Mount Horeb. That's recovered at, or recorded in Exodus and Leviticus. Then in the Wanderings, which we call the Book of Numbers, there's another 57 laws given during the Book of Numbers. And then in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, there's another 200 laws added, and that is the codification of the law of Moses. 613, bada-bing, bada-boom, that's it. The Jews esteem Moses greater than any prophet because he saw God face to face and wrote the law of God on tablets of stone and delivered them to the people. Every other prophet was great, but just not as great as Moses. The metaphor they use is the other prophets saw God in flashes of light. Moses saw God in all of his glory. When you understand this, you can understand why Jesus comes along and says, there's no greater prophet than John. Well, what? What, what do you, wait, not Moses? No, John. Why? Because he prepared the way of the word. But then he said, but I tell you, he that's least in the kingdom, greater than John. When you understand the Old Testament, Jesus becomes a lot more of a devastator than you realize. He wasn't some dope smoking hippie hugging people in the temple saying, there, there now, I just hear buddy hugs. I'm just here to give hugs and flowers because you know I'd never condemn anybody. It, not that I'm going to promote us to go study the Targum or the Midrash or the Mishnah, but when you understand the oral Torah and its influence, you can understand how much of what Jesus was teaching was destroying their religious ideologies. It's why he said, you've heard it said, because that's oral Torah. He never said, you've seen it written, because that's the law of Moses. You've heard it said, that's the oral Torah. And that was them filling in blanks that they didn't have permission to. So the second set, the second section of the Old Testament, they call the Nevaim. That's the N in Tanakh, the Nevaim, and that is the prophets. They do make a distinction between major prophets and minor prophets, but they lump them together. The Nevaim. And see, the Jews see it this way. The Torah is the instruction. The Nevaim is the motivation. Because for the Jew, the law is great to know, but it's given to obey. 
The Torah is great. The law is great to know, but it has been given to obey. And so everything apart from the first five books of the Bible to the mind of the Jew is motivation to do the instruction. When you think James chapter 1 is a New Testament concept, be doers of the word and not hearers only, that ain't New Testament. That's the totality of the Old Testament. The great Christian dichotomy, faith and works, that's Old Testament. Because you have the law, and then what did all the prophets say? Do the law. Do the law. You know why you boys are in trouble? You didn't do the law. You know why the blessing ain't here? You don't do the law. You want the blessing? Do the law. You know why you're cursed? You don't do the law. The real prophet said, do the law. Do the law. Do the law. Do the law. Law, law, law. They didn't come up with anything new. They just said, look at Moses. You, when you understand it, you can also see why Jesus and the apostles said, Moses and the prophets. Torah and Nevaim. The third section is called the Ketuim, Ketuvim, and that is the sacred writings. We would call that poetry and historical books. The books of poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then all the historical books from Joshua there into uh, Job. Ketuvim, the historical writings, but they count those as motivation as well because they're the stories of people doing the word or not doing the word. You look at you know, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, you see the nation learning to walk out the law and the ups and the downs of doing it and not doing it. So they're motivational as well. In fact, as a cool side note, when you get to the book of Joshua, which is the first book of motivation, there are commandments throughout the entire rest of the Old Testament. They're just not law. They're all reiterating the law. The very first commandment of Joshua is, do the law of Moses. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate there and day and night. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. The very first commandment outside of the law is, do the law. Last commandment of the Bible, Malachi chapter 4, don't forget to do the law of Moses. Lord, I'm seeing a pattern here. I'm seeing a pattern. I'm feeling like what you showed Moses you meant. Like that wasn't just a whim. You weren't like wishing you could retweet that or retext it. You weren't like pulling it down. Like you meant that. Yeah. The emphasis of the law of Moses is doing, not just simply knowing, but you can't do without knowing. Back then, even as today, we still conflate knowing with doing, and thus we deceive ourselves. And so to do the word and not know it only is not just a New Testament concept. It's rooted in the Old Testament. I want to give you just a rundown of the laws because this is going to go. We're, we're talking about enduring to the end, but you can't endure to the end without doing the word of God. And let, let's, let's put an asterisk there. We're not made righteousness by the law of Moses, but we know what righteousness looks like. We're made righteousness by faith in Christ Jesus. But we still have to do the law. We still have to do the word. The mitzvah or the law is 613 commandments. The Jews break them up into do's and don'ts. They call them positive and negatives. I'm a scientist. I break them up a hundred other different ways. In working on my botany book, I did. I divided a bunch of them. We, I, I made a whole subsection called agricultural laws. Then you have ceremonial laws, and you have um, uh, familial laws. You have civil laws. You have judicial laws. You have property laws. 
You have, uh, uh, um, you know, there's so many different laws, dietary laws. I would categorize it differently. The Jews, the rabbis, have always just said positives and negatives. It is a positive law to do this. It is a negative law to do that. Do's and don'ts. 365 don'ts. Every day of the week, every day of the year, just do, don't do something. Just don't. <laughs> 248 do's. And to try to wrap your mind around it will make you say, oy vey. And you'll understand why Jesus is like, I'm just so over you guys. You've complicated this. <laughs> the list of 613 was popularized by an 11th century rabbi from Spain. Spain didn't exist then, but that's a territory. His name was Maimonides. He was kind of like a Martin Luther to them. The Jews have sages and rabbis that they look to like we would. A Martin Luther or a Zwingli or a John Calvin, a Spurgeon in more recent times. About 120, 130 years ago, there was a rabbi named Kefitz Kaim, and he recognized that they could not keep all 613 laws because they didn't have a nation anymore, and there was no temple. And without a temple, there's no priesthood, and so he reallocated the laws to those that can be done in the diaspora. Without a temple, without Yeretz Israel, the land of Israel, 1948, hooray, things change. They get more laws they can do there. What's amazing with the Jews, they're chomping, the real Jews, they're chomping at the bits to do the law of God. We as word of fake charismatics, hyper grace, Stanley style people, we're trying to shake responsibility off of us. Part of the reason they wanted their land again is like, there's laws we can't do until we have our land again. There's part of God we can't honor until we get back to our property again. Why do they want a temple? Because there's laws they can't do till they get a temple again. And here we are like, no, I'm free from that. First John's not from me. You know, Galatians is so hard. Corinthians is so rude. You can't read anything in red letters. I mean, just spend time in the concordance and the gazetteer. Learn the maps and you'll make heaven. Huh. <laughs> The Old Testament has 613 laws, which is only 2.5% of the Old Testament. The New Testament, you know this new and better covenant we're under, has 800 laws. 800 laws. There's only 8,000 verses in the New Testament, which means the New Testament is 10% law. That's a new and better covenant. We love Hebrews. It's a new and better covenant, now new with 30% more law. And just so you're not scared, 231 of those laws are mosaic. Because you still can't murder. You still can't swear by a false god. You still can't steal. You still can't commit adultery, though TBN preachers don't understand that. Still can't have other gods. My favorite passage in the Old Testament when it comes to laws is Leviticus 19. There's a law in there. Leviticus 19 is the most legalistic chapter of the whole Old Testament. 37 verses, 33, 34 laws. According to some of these bigwigs, we're delivered from all of them, including that one law that says there about verse 9, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus chapter 19. So apparently we're free from that, so I don't have to love none of y'all. I'm enjoying my freedom in Christ. I hate all of you. And then there's this other law in Leviticus 19 that I'm so excited to be free from called thou shalt not prostitute thy daughter. So I'm free from that. So the good news is I'm going to be making more money with our politicians. I'm going to prostitute them to some of our politicians. 
or our DCS workers, or some of our judges. Now we know that's insane. These are laws that carry over to us. This is a new and better covenant with 30% more commandments because we're so much freer. But here's why, why more law? Why more commandments? Because we're born again. We have matured. We are now the temple. God lives in us. We've taken a step up. We're, we're, we've come into a fullness, a more maturity. We're closer to eternity. We can see God more clearly. Under the Old Testament, just so we're charismatics and we check these boxes, under the Old Testament, it was all called prophecy. And the New Testament is called word of knowledge, word of wisdom and prophecy. Even the gifts of the Spirit bring clarity because we've gotten closer to the eternity. I love it. We're so free. Of course, there's sarcasm there. God recycles agricultural laws to teach the church how to be holy. He says, don't be unequally yoked. That's an agricultural law, but he applies it to pagan friendships. That, it's a little condescending that he has to look at the church and say, you remember that law in Deuteronomy about you know, plowing with unequal animals? I'm going to apply it to you and your friendships. So that kind of indicates we're beasts of burden. And it would, it would behoove us, no pun intended with the hoof part. <laughs> it would behoove us to be careful who we yoke with, even in marriage. Just because she's born again doesn't mean you need to marry her. Just because he's spirit-filled doesn't mean he's going to be a good husband. You don't want to plow in circles till your neck is calloused. And then there's another agricultural law he teaches us about generosity. He says you don't muzzle the ox that treads down the core. That's a law of the old covenant. And he uses that to teach financial support for preachers. And then he has another one that says the labor is worthy of his hire. That's a Torah law. These are New Testament laws that we're supposed to obey. I thought we were free. No, no, only the Satan worshipers free. And they're free to go to hell demonized and tormented. I'm going to stretch you one step further. My, I just taught this to my church a few weeks ago. But we're so free, the gifts of the Spirit are regulated by the law of Moses. If any prophesy, let it be by two or at most three, because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses... Let every word be established. We're so free as crazy Maddox, the law of Moses burps up in our Pentecostalism. Oh, I'm just free. Free. Oh. That law, I call it the law of witnesses. It appears twice in Deuteronomy, once in Matthew, and three times in the New Testament. It's a law that obeys itself. Even tongues and interpretation, two at most three, and let one interpret. Even tongues and interpretation is regulated by the law of witnesses from Deuteronomy. I don't feel like we're free. I feel like we're secure. And I like to use this example. If you're going to fly from here to anywhere, do you know how many laws are upon you? Not just the laws of physics, FAA. 
Don't you want that, those pilots to have training? They're going to have to pass a drug test. That's a law. You want them to have so many thousands of hours. That's a law. You want them to be 20-20 vision. That's a law. You want that airplane to be maintained. That's a law. You want it on time and on early. That's a law. Then you want physics to work. You want Boeing held accountable just so you can easily go places nobody gets to go. I'm telling you, the lawlessness is so thick in our nation. The church is the problem with our country. We're trying so hard to be free, not realizing you just keep cutting these little strings that keep us safe. You'll be, you'll be lost in lawlessness. You'll wake up in hell. And you and I are watching some of the greatest preachers. I wouldn't say great in this honorable, great in size, drift this way. And they're indicating what spirit they're of. You do realize every time God speaks to you, it's a law. Witness to that person. You're bound. Forgive that person. Give in this offering. Serve in this department. If you want to be free, ask Jesus to shut up in your life. Because he rarely can speak without giving us a command. But we understand this is freedom. We want to take our sermon tonight. That was my introduction. That's two-thirds of the first page. I got three more pages, but I think I can blow through it pretty quick if you listen fast. I'm going to take my time. I'm the caboose. I ain't got to teach all week, so. We're going to take our sermon from the Ketuvim, the historical books, the, the sacred writings, because according to the Jews, that is motivation to do the law. Now, let me also say, we have the perfect law of liberty. And all the laws sum up in this that you love your neighbor as yourself. So this is how the law works. Let's give a quick overview. Only one law, love. But mankind is so stupid, you can't just leave it like that. Because if you say just love, then you know folks are going to love Buddha, love Muhammad, love homosexuality, love pedophilia, love their dog, love their cat, love drugs, love sex. So God says, all right, all right, let me... We got to, we got to, let's explain this. All right. Love me. All right. Just got to love you. I can hate my wife, hate my kids. Okay. No, 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 no. Love your neighbor. All right. Well, okay. Love God. Love my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Well, the first neighbor is your mom and dad, which happens to be the first commandment because it's your first neighbor when you come into the earth and love God will that's the creator. So you look at the Ten Commandments and you have one tablet, which is loving God, and the other tablet, which is loving neighbors. And so you think that would be enough, but we're so stupid, he has to spit out 600 more laws to explain what it means to love God and 600 more laws to explain what it means to love your neighbor. Because morons, like American citizens, find loopholes in between laws. And that is lawlessness. And that's why the New Testament says, all the law is fulfilled in this, love your neighbor as yourself. We can't even say that now because we want to mutilate ourselves and call it diversity. So now we have to intercede and step in and cast demons out of people. We're made righteous by obedience to Christ. We are the righteousness of God in Christ, but that does not relieve us from the burden of obeying God's word. We're not relieved from the burden of God's word. 
All things are done decently and in order. The New Testament church has laws. The apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, they have laws they operate in. Tithes and offerings have laws. Evangelism has laws, protocol, ethics. I, this is such a heresy that if you can get the church to bite in this apple, there is no restraint left in the earth. By definition, a law is a restraint. And a, a lawless church is a restraintless church. And that's what we're seeing more and more and more and more and more.